Hello, and welcome to our sixth in the World Sustainability Collective's Purpose Planet podcast series. Our website is at https colon forward slash twice world sustainability collective that's lowercase all one word dot com and you can find us also on twitter at capitals wsc lower slash worldwide all one word lowercase and on facebook at world sustainability collective lowercase all one word and on linkedin at www.linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash world dash sustainability dash collective forward slash all lowercase. Today we are talking with Saima Begg. Saima is a chartered environmentalist who focuses on environmental management, environmental economics and climate change. Her professional website is at www.saimabeg.com, and that's lowercase spelt S-A-I-M-A-B-A-I-G. She also has a website, Science and History, which can be found at www.360onhistory.com. Also, her LinkedIn profile is uh, www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Simon Beg all one word. And her science and history website, she has uh, social media accounts at Twitter, which is at 360 on history, on Instagram, 360 on history, and Facebook, 360 on history. And that's all lowercase, all one word. Welcome, Saima. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me on your podcast. A pleasure. Saima, we have a lot to talk about today, and we'll get into the meat of it, uh, I'm sure, quite quickly. But perhaps we can start by asking you where you studied for your qualifications and why you decided on these topics. Well, I initially achieved an MBA in finance and worked in the private sector for about over three years. I actually worked with an oil company called Caltex, which was a joint venture in Asia Pacific between Chevron and Texaco oil companies. And it was there that I had a change of heart. So I left one fine morning and started volunteering with an international NGO called IUCN, which is International Union for Conservation of Nature and subsequently got an entry-level position there. Now, this is the organization that does the annual uh, annual count of species and whether they're endangered, all the information you get about biodiversity. And this is where I found my calling and my passion when I realized that I wanted to work in environment and ecosystem conservation. So then, um, after working there for five years, I decided to get a degree in the field, which because I did have it before, and was lucky enough to get a place at the Yale University School of Environment in the US, where I got my second master's degree. So it was basically working at IUCN that made me choose these fields. Very interesting. So um, you're a master master, basically. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Now, let's talk a little bit about environmental economics, which uh, at the beginning I mentioned was one of the topics uh, that you focus on. Um, and we seem to have been involved for a similar time frame, Simon. Um, you say you've been working there for 20 years in the in the particular topic. Um, and I was in Shell around the year 2000 when I became involved in ideas to improve sustainability and worked with Dr. Barbara Heinsen on environmental economics. And what we were thinking at the time was how does humankind value nature and hence conserve it, but not consume or destroy it? And it's interesting that the UK government has also thought about this more recently, and it commissioned the Dasgupta report. So, Simon, what do you see as the opportunities to economically value nature? Well, Partha uh, Dasgupta obviously is the spiritual leader of all environmental economists. We've all read him. Um, to answer your question, obviously, we read do we really need, uh, need to rethink how we assess our GDP? That is first and foremost, even Das Gupta report says that. Um, specifically, we need to concentrate, where we have opportunity is obviously our energy systems. They are the most obvious ones because here we uh, con can consider not just the amount of emissions, but also the impact on the environment when we extract fossil fuels. And this does not mean switching over to renewables because Renewable technology also has a huge impact on the environment through the extraction of metals and minerals like graphite, lithium, and cobalt. And we've just started our entry into renewable. So it's a great time to think about how we extract these minerals and how we should value the areas that we extract them from. So uh, in addition, you know, we have our technology, our phones and our laptops. None of us can live without them, even as sustainability types. And we have the same problem there. Uh, a lot of environmental damage to extract the minerals and metals that we need. But one of my favorite things to think about are food systems. Um, there is, you know, food insecurity globally, but a lot of soils are under agriculture and they are mostly unsustainable agriculture. We need to think about innovative ways to value this. It's not at the forefront at the minute, and I think it should be. And these are the obvious things that we need to consider, but I think institutional reforms are the major aspect that we need to consider if we want to value our nature. We won't be able to do it unless all institutions and corporations are, uh, they come along with us. And, you know, corporations are built to consume and use. They found a good way of putting the onus on individuals currently, with, but consumption should move from just putting the blame on people to stop consuming and recycling to how corporations sell and how they invest in nature. That I feel is very important. You know, two decades ago, Bill, when you and I were talking about sustainability, our voices were very few. But now more and more people, are, uh, especially young people, take up the mantle. And organizations are all, also slowly ch changing, but I feel like many of them are greenwashing. And what that means is people who are concerned about the environment, but who don't really understand the whole system, satisfy themselves that corporations are doing their bit, but they're not. All of these systems, uh, these corporations, they have free input, which are the natural cap capital. And this is where we need to concentrate further 
like to have a systems approach. That's what we need, I feel. You mentioned systems approach there, uh, Saima. And um, one of the things that strikes me about this whole situation that we're in with both um, climate change and biodiversity issues, uh, it really shows that the human brain has got limited capacity. And maybe um, one of the things that we're dealing with here is the unintended consequences of our interventions in such a highly complex ecosystem as our natural environment or biosphere, whatever word you want to use. Um, do you think that uh, in valuing uh, th this ecosystem, we can ever get our brains around it or will we always be having unintended consequences, which for example, can be the mineral extraction for renewables, for example? I think we've come to a point where I, first of all, I, I think we do have the brain capacity. We do have the innovation to come up with new uh, ideas. But we've got to a point, if we consider the, the, the rate at which populations are growing and the amount of stuff that we need, that it's going to be a hard task. But I do feel that we can do it. We should be, we, we, we are the, you know, human beings have been innovative for 300,000 years. I think if you can be innovative to extract, you can also be innovative to give back. Thank you. So just staying on that theme for a little bit longer, Saima, um, and using the word biosphere to mean, you know, all the, 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 aspects of nature that we we have on a, this planet if we look at that from a financial point of view which is where your first masters came from um we can look at that as the whole system ecosystem is our capital in financial terms so we've got nature capital if you like and what we need to do is to think about that as being maintained so this is our nest egg. We don't want to start spending our nest egg, but we put it in the nature bank and we're getting interest on it. And it's that's what we've got to live off. Do you think that that concept is feasible for us, given the population growth and the aspirational growth that goes with that, that issue of population growth? So um, while my specialty is environmental economics and before that finance, I do have some reservations about the idea of thinking of nature only as capital. I mean, on the one hand, it does to an extent make sense to talk about natural capital in order to bring nature to the for forefront of business and developmental uh, decision making. But on the other hand, this can mean that we just view nature as an import. So that's not so very different of what we did before of, you know, viewing it as, uh, we, we viewed it as an input uh, then as well, except that it was a free input. So mm. it is so much more than that. We also, I think, need to look at the intrinsic value of nature, go beyond uh, looking at it just as a capital. And I believe that corporations have the most responsibility, but we as consumers also need major changes in our consumption habits. So, you know, if we need to have a rethink of everything, basically, 
But having said that, I'm not sure how we can go back to living off just the interest from natural capital. Personally, I think we are too far gone to be able to do that with the population that we have now and the way technology is advancing, consumable technology, and um, especially with already declining ecosystems that we have. But, you know, um, a, 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 an environmental conservationist or a sustainability person, we are always hopeful, aren't we? And I do believe that we need to consider humans as part of nature so that sometimes you just appreciate nature for its own sake and not just how it benefits us. And that would be a good start. But no, I, I'm not convinced that we can just learn to live off the interest from the capital. We, we should try, but I don't think it will happen. Interesting. Thank you very much, Simon, for your views on that. Um, and you talked there about biodiversity a little bit, and, and perhaps we can move on to that, because in my opinion, I mean, biodiversity has has a, a less of a public profile than climate change, for example, but it may have a similar devastating long-term effect on us. Um, so we've just had COP15. It's very confusing because climate has COP26 and 27, and then biodiversity is COP15. So people think we're going backwards, but it's just it's a different set of numbers. So yeah. biodiversity has its own COPs. And uh, we recently had COP15 in Montreal, uh, where uh, I think it was 196 countries mm -hmm. uh, pledged to protect and restore 30% of global water and land resources. Um, so do you think that... Uh, the main priority actions, you know, what are the main priority actions that we have to take to protect biodiversity? And do you think that these COP15 pledges uh, will be delivered? So I know that there are concerns that the COP15 did not go far enough, but I was quite relieved with most of the pledges because, uh, because there were some that concerned finance and protection and restoration of 30% of the ecosystems. And I think that it's a very good uh, start that uh, almost all the countries uh, pledged to uh, pledge to this. My only concern is that, you know, uh, I always feel that if we put down numbers on nature like this 30 percent, that we'll just get, get stuck on that. And we should not limit ourselves to just that. What about countries like Bhutan that have more than 30 percent of their ecosystems that they have protected? Uh, do they go back? What do we tell them? You know, uh, on the whole, I like the idea and I hope it works. But I think we need to make sure uh, we need to understand that we should not limit ourselves to this 30 percent. Um, as to whether countries will deliver, these are non-binding agreements. So there is always the uh, fear that it's going to be a mixed bag of delivery and non-delivery. We have global inequality at the minute. And it's not easy for poor countries to deliver on these targets because, you know, they always come back and say, we have to eat. But hopefully the financial aid that has been pledged for conservation at COP15 will go to some lands to achieve this. But, you know, this this reminds me of the um, uh, HE biodiversity targets that were set in 2011 and they were supposed to be achieved by 2020 and not one of them have, has been achieved. So again, it depends, but I'm still happy that new pledges were made. It's been more than a decade since uh, the HE targets were set. So hopefully there'll be more progress this time. 
What do you think we can do to to sort of reinforce that? I mean, I take your point that um, first of all, if if you've already got more than the thirty percent because of your own situation, you might become a bit complacent, uh, or you don't have the funding, or the funding doesn't come through in the right way for you to follow up on your pledges. But do you think that that the profile of biodiversity and the issues that it it causes for us potentially in the future are really understood by the the woman and man in the street no they're not because for the most part what people the 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 number of people who understand today has increased from when i started 20 years ago definitely but even now it's people just don't understand that you know our the what we eat what we wear you know everything is dependent on because when they think of biodiversity the word is so sort of vague it they they think animals so fine the cheetahs are dying somewhere or the other what they don't understand is the fi- you know fish that we get from the our oceans and rivers the other food that we eat the plants, everything, this is all biodiversity. And I don't think people understand that very well. We did a great job of uh, highlighting the climate agenda. And I think the same thing can be done for the biodiversity agenda as well. In fact, I think uh, biodiversity agenda has lagged behind it. That was the thing that was put in the forefront, you know, decades ago when sustainability and uh, conservation were uh, talked about but i think we we need more emphasis on these things we need to we need to basically combine climate change with biodiversity conservation because the two are not separate everybody's thinking of them separately but we need to th- tell people we need to explain that these are combined this is one whole like i said systems thinking mm. so where, where where do you think this should come from saima is it the un is it is it individual governments? I mean, where where should this sort of push for increasing uh, everybody's awareness of biodiversity and its linkage with climate change? Where where, where does that impetus come from? It has to be both, uh, Bill. Uh, UN definitely, because it's got the experience and it's got the reach, basically. Mm. Uh, but also individual governments, they need to reconsider their priorities. I, in the UK, for example, right now, I feel like the government is talking a lot about climate change, but not really a lot of concentration on biodiversity and how the two are linked. So it has to come from everyone who's involved, and that's all of us. You know, for example, the be- the the most important thing is teach it in schools. Go back to when you know their kids, so that they know already that this is something that is important. Because by the time you know you're in university or college, it's too late. You you're you you don't know what's going on, and there's there's such a lot of uh, misinformation out there. People just don't believe it in the end. It has to start from schools. We need to change our education system if we want to, you know, make this work. It's interesting you say that, Simon, because there's um, a woman in uh, in the northwest of the UK who uh, was a teacher, in fact, a head teacher. And uh, she's moved out of education. uh, And uh, what she is now doing is she's putting together um, education packages on both climate change and biodiversity and supplying them back into the education system to primary school teachers 
in order that they can actually do what you described and, and educate our very young, uh, because the curriculum just does not address that. I mean, the, the curriculum is now uh, oh, four or five years, maybe maybe more old. Um, and, and we're just not keeping pace fast enough uh, with, with the, those issues in the curriculum that we're teaching our young people. So I think I totally agree with you that that's the focus. We should always start um, with with people at uh, an early age uh, and make sure that they've got the facts and the capabilities to actually manage the facts um, in our yeah, and, education. And also it has to be in a positive way as well. Uh, you don't start with the kids by scaring the living daylights out of them about everything dying and you know yes um, so it ha when you when you start with kids it can be a positive way uh, teaching them to look at the intrinsic value of nature and that can help you later on so i'm glad this lady is doing this it is sorely needed yeah you don't want to start the lesson with you're all doomed <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah it sort of wouldn't wouldn't help the uh the sort of uh, the listening skills. No. Um, you mentioned uh, a bit earlier in, in one of your responses, Saima, about um, food and agriculture. Um, and that brings me on to another point that I um, I personally think is, is very important for all of us to understand more about, and that's soil regeneration. Um, it's one of the most important aspects in dealing with climate change. Um, but I don't think many people understand that. Some do, uh, some farmers do, um, because I've, I've listened to them on, on television, so they, they do that. But soil, regenerating soil can capture more carbon dioxide uh, than uh, trees and also peat bogs. So there is a hierarchy. So trees is relatively at the bottom, then peat, then, then soil. And if we don't regenerate soil, then, of course, we get soil erosion. Um, the soil itself isn't rich enough with nutrients to be able to uh, allow food to, to grow to the extent that it's needed, either in terms of quality or quantity. Um, so that's, I think, a, a major issue, but we don't hear about it. Why do you think that is? Why, why don't we hear more from people? Uh, governments or or NGOs or whoever it is about soil regeneration? Well, because soil is not sexy. <laughs> it's always behind the scenes. It's something that's done there to grow your food. Um, work on regenerating soil is being done in many developing countries because their food is dependent on it. But it does not make for pretty campaigns, basically. I'm really I'm not sure of the numbers, but per perhaps soil as a means for carbon capture is not at the forefront of climate lists for a number of reasons. In the poorer developing countries, the issue is of food systems. So we have people across the world who rely specifically on soils for their daily food. The green revolution promoted by the likes of the World Bank has basically destroyed regenerative agriculture that was historically employed in those areas. So it's not easy for developing country governments to shift it back. It's just you know, not feasible at, for them to do so, or at least they don't think it is feasible. And dependency has increased so much 
So the issue is now about food security in poor country, which is really not an issue. We have enough food. It's just that's the issue that's considered more important. Plus, mm. we, the, the other problem is industrial level agriculture, you know, corporations that sell fertilizer and pesticides, you know, they're not ready to promote organic farming or crop rotation and stuff like that. Industrial farming is just more profitable, even if the soil is losing its uh, nutrients, add more fertilizer. You know, that's just the way it is. I don't know if you've heard about the almond uh, farms in California. I mean, they have to actually bring in almonds are uh, pollinated by bees mm -hmm. and there are no bees in that area. So they have to bring bees in buses from other parts of the U.S. so that those almonds can be pro uh, pollinated. That's cheaper. So in, uh, that's cheaper than actually uh, uh, growing the almonds in more nutri nutritious soil. And, you know, finally, when we look at richer countries, there too, we have such, you know, entrenched monoculture practices and the beef and dairy industry comes to mind. So much soil is used to plant food for cattle that it does not make sense for big corporations to move to transforming soils. Soil just gets missed out because it's not cute or beautiful or, you know, causes storms. It's basically to us, it's intangible. But I agree with you. It is the more, most important thing. And we really need to look at it uh, uh, as part of our overall, uh, you know, innovation for uh, climate change and biodiversity. I love that thing about bussing bees. It's typical US solution, <laughs> bus somebody somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. Um that there are people around now in, in UK farming who are actually involved in uh, quite a lot of innovative work around ag gen, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I understand that one of the principles is, for example, uh, you have a you have basically uh, plants that you grow in the soil, and instead of um, actually going in and plowing the soil which everybody sees around in, in the farms that they, they go out and they plow the fields. You don't do that. You leave this cover of plants because that's what pulls in the CO2 from the atmosphere mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. plant over the top of it. Yeah. Um, and then you let the cattle graze on the food because mm -hmm. as you said, most of this uh, these foods are, are grown for uh, livestock. You let the animals graze on that and of course, they fertilize it as they walk around. Um, and so it's a, it's again, it's a it's a holistic system that people are experimenting with in order to get this agricultural regeneration of their soil. So it's a bit like a circular economy for farmers, if you think yep. about it that way. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, I know there are plenty, many, many farms that are looking at that who have changed their practices or are about to change their practices. And I think that's a good sign in the UK and it will def be definitely benefit us in the long run. Yes, we just need to find a way of, of encouraging and promoting that those practices. Yeah. yeah. Now, you you create, manage and, and execute um, a number of uh, high profile and, and, and complex programs and projects. Um, and... Uh, you've you've done this for some time. 
And uh, I know you shared with me a recent example, um, which was a set of projects on the ecosystems, uh, ecosystem-based adaptation on a number of mountain systems and communities. Um, it's a very big project, and I know you've written extensively about it, but what briefly for our listeners were the highlights of this project for you, Simon? Well, I met with people from so many mountain areas across Asia, Africa, and South America, and they were all different. I'd really not worked on mountain ecosystems before, and it was just so fascinating to see that the people who were actually implementing those projects in those particular areas, they were working with the indigenous populations there, especially in, in Africa. On Mount Elgon, there was a very sort of indigenous community that was working on this project. And the value that these people had for their mountains was not just about using them sustainably. sustainably. It was how they provided spiritual benefits to them. And I found that very, very positive. It just was very sort of encouraging to see that. Yes, it must be. Um, you can imagine, I mean, the spirituality of a mountain. I mean, apart from anything else, your well-being can be enhanced by being in that beautiful scenery. But on yep. the other hand, uh, usually those mountain environments are, can be very harsh from a weather point of view. Yep, they are. It's both. And people still, uh, you know, they still hold them in high esteem. I don't know if you've heard about this was not part of this project, but uh, in Pakistan, there's an area in, in Gilgit in the northern parts. And there the communities actually, they graft glaciers. So it's called a glacier marriage. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, uh, the, the community members, they go and they cut out a piece of one glacier and take it to another area and put it there so that the glacier starts growing. And this is a very harsh environment, but they hold it very, very uh, dear to them. And they are involved in this. It's a whole ceremony. And it's just fascinating. I would encourage you to read up on that. I think I have a, a blog on that on my website as well. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll get that from you uh, later and, and certainly read about that. Thank you. Um, so... You also write, I, I mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast, this uh, science and history site that you have, um, and you write on science, history, nature, climate change, feminism, politics, human rights, liberalism, and secularism. And that's a really exciting list of topics, Simon. What, what's the most interesting response you've had from one of your blogs or vlogs on these topics that you can share with us? Well, um, other than being remorselessly trolled for some articles on feminism and secularism, uh, the most interesting uh, responses are always about my science posts, uh, especially those related to space, because I am constantly updating my information. I look at the NASA website every day. So mm -hmm. there is a lot happening there constantly. And most of the time, uh, the, the responses I get are about that, because people... Obviously, there's so much happening in space exploration. People don't have time to, you know, uh, absorb all that information. So when they do come to my website, there's always a lot of surprise over some new discovery that has happened. And I always find that very interesting to have conversations with those people because then they go back and they want to learn more. 
Well, that's exciting that people want to learn, isn't it? I mean, yeah. um, I, th I think you and I share the fact that, you know, we want to continue all the way through our lives, continuing to learn and develop our understanding of both systems and phenomena. Um, and it's it's good that other people are, are wanting to do that too, because I think it's very important, apart from anything else, for your sanity. Um, thank you, Simon, for sharing your experiences and your thoughts and ideas with us today. Um, it's a truly remarkably sustainability career that you've got. Um, thank you very much, Bill. I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And thanks to you, the audience, for joining us today. We appreciate that very much. We'll be bringing you more podcasts in the coming months. Please visit our website on https colon forward slash forward slash world sustainability collective lowercase or one word dot com to follow our activities and tune in to all our purpose planet podcasts. Goodbye. <laughs>